The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerviewed.com forward slash AMC 860. Downloadable practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Nirav Shah from the Medical College of Wisconsin. Welcome to Visualizing Progress with BTK Inhibitors, an animated journey through the mechanisms of covalent and non-covalent options. Here we have in this diagram the BTK pathway, a very important pathway in B-cell malignancies, one that can be targeted in more than one fashion. In a few moments together, we'll take a trip along the BCR pathway, which has proven to be a very valuable and effective target for therapeutic development. The good news is that BTK inhibitor class of agents, which target aspects of the BCR pathway, is highly effective in different B-cell cancers, settings such as CLL, SLL, and MCL. As we'll see, in some cases, this efficacy can be compromised. And so understanding how these agents work and how to overcome challenges like intolerance and resistance will become an important part of patient care as more BTK inhibitors are approved for clinical use. Let's start by looking through some of these challenges and where BTK inhibitors are used today. In this diagram, we see that BTK inhibitors have shown proven efficacy and in fact have earned FDA-approved indications in multiple B-cell malignancies. Most commonly, its use is well-established in diseases like CLL and mantle cell lymphoma, but it's also approved in marginal cell lymphoma and Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. However, the question is, what limits the efficacy of these BTK inhibitors? Despite these drugs being incredibly efficacious, we do know that over time, patients can develop resistance and can progress with these agents. One current limitation of BTK inhibitors is intolerance. So let's take a look at some of the trials where ibrutinib was used in CLL in particular. And in these three trials, the Resonate, Resonate 2, and the PCYC trial, we saw among the total number of patients, it was a 38% discontinuation rate. And of the total number of patients, 11% of them actually discontinued due to adverse events. In the frontline setting, actually, 41% of patients end up discontinuing therapy at five years. And the majority of these end up stopping treatment due to the development of adverse side effects. In relapse refractory CLL, 54% of patients ultimately end up discontinuing therapy. And again, many of them are a result of adverse effects. What about the real world setting? So clinical trials are different than what we see in patient care. Trials that have tried to look at this real world setting have found similar findings as we saw in the clinical trial. So in this one real-world analysis, we saw for ibrutinib that toxicity actually was the reason for discontinuation in 51% of patients, which is interesting because that was actually the most common reason for discontinuation of the drug. In another real-world CLL-SLL study, 41% of patients discontinued ibrutinib. What are the most common AEs leading to discontinuation? The most common causes of discontinuation are well-defined with our irreversible covalent BTK inhibitors. And these are things like atrial fibrillation, bleeding, bruising, infection. And then these are real reasons, as you can see in these trials, why patients end up having to discontinue an agent that we know is very effective. While adverse events explains part of the reason people are not able to tolerate BTK inhibitors, 
The other issue in terms of limiting efficacy is that patients do develop therapeutic resistance. So looking again at these three major trials, we know that 38% of patients ultimately did end up discontinuing the drug. But looking at that total population, 16% actually progressed on therapy. And what we've learned in CLL in particular is that resistant mutations are often leading to progression in patients receiving ibrutinib in the CLL setting. And so what are these resistance mutations? For 87% of patients with CLL, the mutations were at the BTK binding site or downstream at the PLCY2 area where acquired mutations occur, leading to resistance to drugs like ibrutinib. The BTKC481 mutations are the most common reason for progressive CLL after covalent BTK inhibitors. And these mutations prevent covalent BTK inhibitors from effectively binding and getting the target inhibition. So now that we've taken a look at the scope of the problem, let's take a step back and look at what led us to this point. Why do BTK inhibitors work so well? And what are the mechanistic underpinnings of resistance and intolerance? We'll see these answers to these questions as we keep moving along the BTK pathway. So let's take a look at the BTK pathway. So how drugs like ibrutinib and other covalent irreversible BTK inhibitors work is by binding the BTK site in an irreversible fashion and inhibiting the BTK activation. So BTK signaling and NF-kappa-beta activation can be effectively blocked by irreversible covalent BTK inhibitors such as ibrutinib. Now, these drugs are very effective in this mechanism, but we'll see in upcoming slides how resistance can occur both at the BTK binding site or downstream with mutations in molecules such as PLCG2. Resistance, we've learned, can manifest differently in different B-cell malignancies. So in CLL-SLL, we actually have the best data and the most characterized mutations. And again, we've talked a little bit about this, and we'll look at this in upcoming diagrams, but mutations at the BTKC481 site is the most common mechanism of resistance in CLL to drugs like ibrutinib, and mutations in the PLC gamma 2 at multiple hotspots are also a reason for mutations that can lead to resistance. In diseases like Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, mantle cell lymphoma, and marginal zone lymphoma, the characterization of these mutations is less defined, although we do see some similar patterns, such as BTK mutation binding site mutations, and then there are resistance mutations in mantle cell that lead to primary resistance associated with cell cycle. Again, there's much to be learned about this, and for a useful reference on BTK resistance, please download the practice aid we provided that summarizes these relevant mutations. So let's take a closer look now at BTK resistance. Here's the structural schematic of BTK. So you see here the C481 binding site and the structure of the BTK protein. Ibrutinib works by inhibiting the BTK protein at the C481 site, and it binds it in an irreversible covalent fashion. And so it selectively binds to this residue in an allosteric inhibitory segment of the BTK kinase domain. Mutations at the BTK C481 site change ibrutinib to a reversible inhibitor. This leads to decreased binding efficiency, resulting in resistance, 
and allowing increased BTK enzymatic activity and then disease progression. Now we know that there's been great advancements in BTK therapies with two second generation BTK inhibitors, drugs such as acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. While these BTK inhibitors are more selective and result in less off-target toxicity, their actual mechanism in how they inhibit BTK is identical to ibrutinib. They are both covalent inhibitors that irreversibly bind C481, and hence the resistance that occurs does occur across all three drugs, given the mechanism of the resistance pattern in CLL. So we've seen that the process here contributes to disease progression and diminishes the efficacy of all of our covalent BTK inhibitors, even the ones that have been recently approved. Now, what's exciting is a new development of novel agents which don't rely on the C481 binding site. An example of this is the drug called pertrobrutinib, which is a non-covalent BTK inhibitor and one that does not bind to C481, and therefore it can reversibly inhibit BTK and overcome resistance of patients who have failed other BTK inhibitors. And pertrobrutinib works by blocking the ATP binding site of BTK, so a very different mechanism than our covalent irreversible inhibitors. So we can now see how intimately resistance is tied to these BTK inhibitor mechanisms. What about intolerance? For that, we need to get a better understanding of the selectivity of BTK inhibitor class of agents. So let's start with ibrutinib, which was really the first BTK inhibitor approved for many indications. And it was approved because it's a potent and irreversible BTK inhibitor that is highly effective at blocking the BCR signaling. But when you look at this diagram, you can see that ibrutinib doesn't just impact the BTK protein. In fact, it has many other off-target inhibitions of other kinases. And these off-target effects can actually help explain some of the toxicities that we can see with the irreversible inhibitors. The advancement that has occurred is a development of drugs like acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, which mechanistically work similarly to ibrutinib, but are far more selective for BTK and hence have less of the off-target toxicities than we saw with the first drug approved, ibrutinib. Now, the non-covalent agents, such as pertubrutinib and ARC-531, are also very selective BTK inhibitors. But again, these work through a different mechanism of action than the covalent inhibitors that are currently on market. So why is all of this important? Less selective BTK inhibitors are going to have a higher likelihood of an off-target effect, which can contribute to the toxicity profile that is well-established with covalent irreversible BTK inhibitors. So let's look at some of these BTK off-target effects. So off-target kinases that are sometimes impacted are things like TEC and EGFR, and they help explain the bleeding, the cardiac toxicity, things like atrial fibrillation, the rash, the diarrhea, and the arthralgias that can be seen with the current class of agents. For a useful reference on BTK inhibitor safety and off-target effects, please download the practice aid that summarizes this important information. At this point, we've seen how BTK inhibitors work. 
and how certain mechanistic aspects of these ages are tied to the clinical efficacy, but as well as the challenges of resistance and intolerance. So let's take a look at some clinical evidence that shows how these differences manifest within our clinical practice. So there are some exciting data actually comparing these covalent irreversible inhibitors, ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and xanabrutinib in a head-to-head -head fashion. In the Elevate study, looking at relapse refractory CLL, acalabrutinib was compared to ibrutinib and the most important finding was the difference in adverse events, and in particular, the rates of atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter were much lower in acalabrutinib. And we now better understand that because acalabrutinib is a more selective BTK inhibitor, hence resulting in less off-target toxicities. Another important finding is how many patients actually ended up having treatment discontinuation as a result of this complication. And demonstrating that the toxicity was less with acalabrutinib, no patients had to discontinue treatment as a result of this. In a similar fashion, xanabrutinib was compared to ibrutinib in the Alpine study. And again, here, looking at the cardiac toxicity of atrial fib and atrial flutter, we see here that the rates of grade three and any grade cardiac toxicity, again, was lower in the more selective BTK inhibitor, xanabrutinib. What about pertubrutinib? So this is the non-covalent BTK inhibitor that does not rely on binding at the C481 site and works through a different mechanism of action. This was recently tested in a phase 1-2 study called the Bruin trial, which looked at this agent in a variety of B-cell malignancies. They enrolled patients who had an ECOG of 0 to 2 and included patients who were 18 and older with diseases like CLL or other B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma including mantle cell lymphoma, Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, as well as other non-Hodgkin lymphomas. What we found in this study is that pertubrutinib was highly active in relapse refractory CLL. But a key finding in this study was that it was effective even among patients who had prior BTK therapy. So the overall response rate for all patients with CLL was 62%. But you can see here that the dark blue lines represent patients who had prior BTK discontinuation for progression. The lighter blue had BTK discontinuation for toxicity or for other reasons, which actually represented the majority of patients on this trial. And so even if you had resistance to BTK inhibitor, your overall response rate was 67%. If you had prior BTK intolerance, your overall response rate was 52%. And the specific mutation, which is well-defined as a mechanism of resistance to the covalent irreversible inhibitors of BTK, which is a C481 mutation, the oral response rate with pertubrutinib was 71%, demonstrating that what we have learned mechanistically about how this drug works actually plays out in clinical practice, that these drugs can be effective even in patients who have resistance mutations. Pertinibrutinib was also active in patients who had relapse refractory mantle cell lymphoma, as well as other B-cell malignancies. Specifically looking at mantle cell, the overall response rate was 52%. And again, the majority of patients had prior exposure to BTK inhibitors. And even in that setting, the overall response rate was the same at 52%. Now, as a different sort of BTK inhibitor with the non-covalent mechanism of action, 
the question was, would the toxicity profile be different, especially given that this was a very selective BTK inhibitor as well? And obviously, this is an early phase study. But what was interesting is you can see here that there were very low rates of grade three to four treatment-related adverse events. And in particular, we don't see any significant rates of atrial fib or flutter, bleeding, again, grade three to four, that are common complications known with the covalent BTK inhibitors. This data suggests that a non-covalent BTK inhibitor does have a unique toxicity profile than the class of drugs that are currently available in this setting. It's time for some take-home messages. But before we conclude, let's briefly look at where BTK inhibitors are placed in the B-cell cancer management landscape, since our conclusions will have implications for how these agents may be selected and sequenced in the future. So ibrutinib as being the first BTK inhibitor approved has approvals in multiple settings, including CLL, SLL, mantle cell lymphoma, marginal zone lymphoma, as well as Waldenstern macroglobulinemia. Acalabrutinib is approved in CLL-SLL, approved in mantle cell as a second-line therapy, and is undergoing investigation in marginal zone lymphoma and Waldenstrom's. Zatabrutinib is in a phase three study in CLL-SLL, but approved as a second-line therapy in mantle cell lymphoma, and recently actually approved in marginal zone lymphoma, as well as Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. Now, pertabrutinib, the non-covalent BTK inhibitor, is still in clinical investigation, but with multiple phase two and three studies that are undergoing right now, which we anticipate will hopefully lead to this drug being approved and offering patients another option and a unique BTK inhibitor for their B-cell malignancy. It is clear that BTK inhibitors are a very effective therapy in multiple B-cell malignancies. Let's look at a breakdown of how these agents are used in the most common indications. So looking at diseases like CLL and SLL, for patients who have treatment-naive CLL who meet indications for treatment, regardless of your age, the presence of comorbidities, whether you're an older patient or a younger patient, both acalabrutinib and ibrutinib are considered appropriate frontline therapies for patients with treatment-naive CLL. Similarly, for those patients who have high-risk mutations such as P53 or deletion 17P, again, both acalabrutinib and ibrutinib are considered appropriate standards of care. For some patients who have not had prior exposure to a BTK inhibitor and have relapsed and are now requiring a second-line therapy, again, drugs like acalabrutinib and ibrutinib are considered appropriate in the second-line or relapse setting as well. What about mantle cell lymphoma? For those patients who require second-line or subsequent therapy, Actually, all three BTK inhibitors are now FDA-approved and available and are considered appropriate standard of care in the second-line setting, and this includes acalabrutinib, ibrutinib, and xanabrutinib. So what are our take-home messages for the current use of BTK inhibitors and the emergent of these new, novel, non-covalent agents? Well, currently, BTK inhibitors are standard frontline options in CLL-SLL, and clearly a second-line treatment of choice in mantle cell lymphoma. We know now that resistance and therapeutic intolerance are real challenges to the effective use of the covalent BTK inhibitors in both CLL and mantle cell. 
for those patients with CLL, many patients who do progress, they have well-defined mutations at the BTK binding site or downstream, and that explain the mechanism of resistance to that therapy. In addition, both real-world studies and large clinical trials have demonstrated that adverse events are a major reason for treatment discontinuation. What is optimistic is that these newer, more selective covalent BTK inhibitors appear to be better tolerated, again, in prospective clinical trials compared to ibrutinib. In mantle cell lymphoma, BTK inhibitors are now being studied in a variety of fashion, often in a combination approach in the frontline setting, and we're looking forward to seeing that data and how it may change the landscape of mantle cell moving forward. What about these non-covalent BTK inhibitors? Well, the data we have from the large Bruin study do show that they have efficacy in patients progressing on prior covalent BTK inhibitor therapy, and that it can overcome resistance mutations among patients who have failed the irreversible covalent BTKs. Additionally, we've seen that the toxicity profile of the non-covalent agents does appear to be different than what we've seen over the years with the covalent irreversible inhibitors. The potential of these non-covalent agents to offer better efficacy is being explored in phase three clinical trials. A very exciting trial is a Bruin MCL study, which is actually testing pertubrutinib head-to-head against any standard of care BTK inhibitor in relapse refractory BTK-naive mantle cell lymphoma, and should give us a clear picture of how these non-covalent agents compare to the irreversible covalent BTK inhibitors. So this concludes our exploration of BTK inhibitor therapy, looking at the different mechanisms between covalent and non-covalent agents, understanding how mechanisms of resistance and tolerance impact our patients, and seeing how these agents may challenge the current algorithm for B-cell malignancies. I hope you found this program interesting and useful for your practice. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash AMC 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. This activity is accredited by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education.